What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. You know, we always called each other good fellas. Like you'd say to somebody, you're going to like this guy. He's all right. He's a good fella. He's one of us. You understand? We were good fellas, wise guys. Ray Liotta, of course, and his iconic voiceover from Martin Scorsese's Goodfellas. But the music playing under Liotta? The classic rock staple Layla by Derek and the Dominoes. This week's film spotting top five, classic rock moments in movies. Joining us for that top five, rock writer Stephen Hyden. His new book is Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. All that and more. Josh, cue up Sunshine Your Love. Maury the wig salesman just walked in. Ahead on film spotting. It's getting me dawn. Welcome to Film Spotting. Last week, we got together with rock critic and fellow podcaster Stephen Hyden to talk about his new book, Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. We also talked with Stephen about the rock critic movie, Cameron Crowe's Almost Famous. Josh and I revisited Crowe's film for the occasion and spent the first part of the show giving Crowe's movie the sacred cow treatment. We recorded a film spotting top five as well, classic rock moments in movies, and all that talking resulted in maybe the longest night of a recording in the show's history that wasn't also a year-end best-of show, which is the long way of saying that we split that recording into two shows, a double album, in the parlance of this week's topic. So, if you missed last week's show or haven't caught up with it yet, you can listen to that conversation with Stephen Hyden, along with our review of Almost Famous over at filmspotting.net or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This week, it's the top five classic rock moments in movies, the Hold Me Closer Tiny Dancer memorial list. And we start with the Rolling Stones. While the sun is bright, or in the darkest night, no one knows. I think we're just going to have to be secretly in love with each other and leave it at the hemorrhage. The sound of Margot exiting Richie's tent in the Royal Tenenbaums to the tune of the Rolling Stones' Ruby Tuesday. It's time for the Film Spotting Top 5, our classic rock moments in movies. Author of the new book, Twilight of the Gods, Stephen Hyden, is with us to help count down these choices. And I was thinking about the Royal Tenenbaums and that sequence in the tent. She smiled sweetly on the record player, which is a song I'd never heard before before I saw the Royal Tenenbaums, loved it instantly, and it goes right into Ruby Tuesday, and a little bit of artfulness, which isn't surprising, on the part of Wes Anderson there. I learned this later, but that Rolling Stones album, the American version of Between the Buttons that Ruby Tuesday and She Smiled Sweetly are on, they do not follow each other. That, uh-huh. That's just a little bit of misdirection there for the movie. It worked better for that scene. And I love that scene. I love those songs. I think he does something similar in my Wes Anderson pick, which we'll get to. So maybe we can talk about that so at that point. The other reason I bring up the Royal Tenenbaums is because it's not eligible for this list, at least not for us, Josh, to choose any scenes from it because the Royal Tenenbaums is in the film spotting pantheon. If it wasn't in the pantheon, you could do an entire top five just from this movie starting not only with those two Stone songs, Judy is a Punk, These Days by Nico, Stephanie Says, Lou Reed, so many great options. Is this one, Stephen, that you have some affection for, the Royal Tenenbaums? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, Paul Simon, uh, me and Julio, down oh, yeah. Schoolyard. I mean, that's great a great sequence. scene. 
Yeah, I mean, Russ, Wes Anderson uses classic rock songs, obviously, extremely well. And Rushmore is another one. I mean, I, I have a feeling we're going to talk about Rushmore later. We are. Yes. <laughs> Indeed. But uh, Rushmore has a ton of great moments like that, too. So, yes, definitely. I, I, yeah. I could have chosen many Wes Anderson scenes for my top five. Another one of those directors that you instantly think of when you think of classic rock in movies, Martin Scorsese, the piano exit from Layla in Goodfellas, Sunshine of Your Love, that great scene, both ineligible for us because they're in the Pantheon, and a couple others I'll throw out. Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs have a few options between them, also ineligible, and The Graduate, Simon and Garfunkel go with The Sounds of Silence or any other song from that soundtrack. The End, if you're a Doors fan from the beginning of Apocalypse Now, would certainly also be eligible for these lists, but not for ours. So we've discounted a few, but we've got many, many, many more to choose from. And Stephen, you're going to start us off your number five classic rock moment in movies. So I have some obvious choices on my list. So I wanted to find a couple less obvious choices. And my number five pick is from The Place Beyond the Pines, which I think is an underrated movie from this decade, especially the first 45 minutes of that movie. Oh, yeah. I think are excellent. And I love the scene with Ryan Gosling and Ben Mendelsohn after they first rob, they rob the first bank and they celebrate while listening to Dancing in the Dark by Bruce Springsteen. Ryan Gosling is dancing with this like little chihuahua swinging the legs around and like Ben Mendelsohn is like counting money and smoking a cigarette and uh, at one point he actually reaches over and he turns up the song and uh, it, it feels you know, I love scenes like where people are actually listening to the song mm-hmm. you know in the scene and you know where it's not just like sort of played over the scene and only the audience can hear it so I, so I think that's a great example of that so Place Beyond the Pines, a less obvious pick, yeah. perhaps, but great song, really cool scene. Yeah, the song makes it. Yeah, yep. and that's a movie, I'm one of the people who underrated it because I have yet to see it, so thanks for giving me another reason. <laughs> I saw it, and I just <laughs> underrated it, but I'm with you on that first third anyway, is just a, is wonderful. It was really one of my, my favorite films of the year up until a certain point, but one I need to revisit. So I have to start my list with a, a bit of a confession, and that's classic rock was never really my thing. And this isn't an aesthetic judgment that I'm trying to make on the music. It's just that when I started getting into music, this would have been late 80s, classic rock was exactly what you described, Stephen. It was a radio thing, WCKG here in Chicago. And the marketing, the branding, just everything they were selling as part of that package was at least where I was growing up, more of like a burnout crowd thing. And that wasn't my crowd. So I leaned more towards, you know, like early alternative stuff. It was it was like, you know, U2, R.E.M., The Cure, Depeche Mode, just before they kind of went huge. What you're saying is you're a narc. I suppose. <laughs> I suppose you could describe it that way. So I basically I had to become convinced of classic rock. And the cool thing for this list is that the movies – really helped me do that. You know, it was after hearing these songs perfectly employed in certain scenes that then I kind of could recognize those inherent musical attributes that that maybe I was overlooking before just because of the associations I had. So think think of my list as having a subtitle, the top five scenes that sold me on classic rock. Like it. And my number five, which did that, is Don't Stop Me Now by Queen. 
in Shaun of the Dead. Uh, this point in the zombie comedy, Shaun and his friends, they're hiding out in that pub and a horde is milling about outside. And then suddenly this one lone zombie comes wandering in the room. The jukebox kicks on and it starts playing Queen, which happens to provide just the right rhythm for uh, their pool cue attack. Okay, Joan, it's time at the bar. Now over at Slash Film, we're fans of the Slash Film cast. Dallin Rowell compiled the greatest music moments in Edgar Wright's filmography and had this to say about Queen in Shaun of the Dead. This is one of many examples where Wright edits in a way that makes the action improve the diegetic sound, as this is one masterfully crafted orchestra of blood, guts, and glory. While the perfectly timed whacking of the cast's various weapons to the seemingly synchronized turning on and off of the lights outside the pub, Edgar showcases his understanding of rhythm and makes every second count in making this moment work just right. Indeed it did, so my list kicks off with Queen's Don't Stop Me Now in Shaun of the Dead. Am I going to get to some Queen talk in your book, Stephen? I, I don't feel like I have heard too much about them through the parts of the book that I've read so far. No, and you know, we're, we're bringing up a painful topic for me because one of my big regrets is that I didn't talk more about Queen in the book because I love Queen and I wanted to put them in the book. I planned to put them in the book. And I just could not really think of anything original to say about them. Hmm. You know, and it didn't really fit in any of the chapters that I already had. And I was thinking about this the other night. I, I'm still frustrated that I couldn't get it done because I love Queen. You mentioned Shaun of the Dead. Of course, Edgar Wright put Brighton Rock. Yeah. And um, Baby Driver, that was a great use of that song. So, no, you're not going to read. There, there's Queen is mentioned here and there, but I did not go as deep into them as I wanted to. So maybe if there's a Twilight of the Gods 2, I can finally rectify this injustice. The extended cut. There you go. <laughs> you know, but right now, uh, you know, the book is what it is. Don't Stop Me Now, maybe not in my top 10 favorite Queen songs, but used perfectly by Edgar Wright in Shaun of the Dead. I did factor in forming this list, and I'm sure we all did this, who the best employers of rock music and cinema are. I wanted to represent them if I could on the list. You've heard a couple of those names already. I did also consider whether or not people like me who have seen some of these movies multiple times, revere these films and love these moments. If the moment you hear this song in some other context, you instantly think of the movie. And I do also want to point out, because you've heard this word diegetic come up a couple times already. A lot of people wrote to us on Twitter and they were curious whether or not diegetic or non-diegetic music instances would count. Of course, they all count. It can be a scene like... Dancing in the Dark, Stevens number five, where they are actually listening to Bruce Springsteen in the scene. Or it can be an example like Don't Stop Me Now from Josh, where they're not listening to it, but Edgar Wright has imposed that over well, the scene. Well, in that scene, actually. Is it on the jukebox? Yeah, okay. it comes on the jukebox. I haven't jukebox, seen it in a while, so, so there you yeah, go. Yeah, yeah. Lots of, lots of examples I'm sure you're going to hear on our list, though, that are purely non-diegetic. And that's the case with my number five, which I'm not going to call it a cheat because it's not, but it's not about the music cue itself, the reason I chose it. It's not about how the sound and image interplay. It's more about what is said about the music. 
And you can probably infer from that that it is a Richard Linklater movie. And the movie is Boyhood. It's the band on the run scene. Ethan Hawke, as the dad, giving his son Mason the Beatles' Black Album for yes, his yes, birthday. Yes. So, I mean, look, look at that. Look at that. Uh, top of volume two. First four tracks. You got Band on the Run, Into My Sweet Lord, Into Jealous Guy, Into Photograph. Come on. It's like the perfect segue. You got Paul who takes you to the party. George who talks to you about God. John who says, no, it's about love and pain. And then Ringo who just says, hey, can we enjoy what we have while we have it? It's a good record. I shit you not. Well, I just love the meaning the dad ascribes to the music, where he explains it's all there in the personalities and the art of John, Paul, George, and Ringo. The whole of existence basically can be found in those personalities and in the music they made, and of course unlocking it through this album and the order he has put these tracks in. And the fact is, I think, Stephen, you'd probably even agree with this, it's kind of what you do as a writer and as a critic, as much as we all love listening to music ourselves, the truth is we probably all enjoy turning other people onto music as much or more. So it's moving when you hear the dad say, and now it's been carefully found, arranged, and ordered for you by your loving father. But I also would say there's something about how kids today, if I can generalize for a second, they seem like they know so much. They grow up too quickly. They have every answer, all the information they would need at their fingertips. Part of our jobs as parents is to try to unravel some mysteries, to reveal secrets. And music, art, is where we can still maybe play a role, just as Ethan Hawke is doing here in the scene. Honestly, my sharpest and my fondest memories of my dad are riding in the car with him and him pointing out little nuances and songs that he loved and the certain lines from classic rock songs that he loved and that he appreciated the most. I'll even throw this out. At my dad's funeral, my friend Jason and I got up and played a medley of songs because they were all derived from those moments in the car with him. Mm. Just like this, we played Reelin' in the Years by Steely Dan, Shooting Star by Bad Company, and Deep Purple's River Deep Mountain High, three of my dad's favorite songs that he commented on every time they came on. I felt like wisdom was being passed down to me, and now I catch myself doing that all the time with my kids. We then finally do get the song itself, Band on the Run comes up, and it's just a transition. That's all. There's nothing amazing about how it's employed otherwise, because we just see this car that they're riding in kind of pulling into the place they're going to. But that's the whole point, of course. It is just this transition. That whole film is all about that, how life is all about these throwaway moments, the segues. But in putting together a mixtape, unlike life, you get to actually dictate the segues. And I've always just been really profoundly moved, I guess, by that scene featuring Ethan Hawke and his Black Album, which he actually put together for his daughter. And he wrote liner notes. And then they took that bit of reality and oh, transferred it that. to the film. So he didn't come up with that just for the movie. That's a real thing that exists. He put that album together. And you can find that track listing and put it together yourself if you want. I'll link to it in our show notes. Man, I'm going to get emotional here <laughs> just listening to you talk because I have kids and I ride with them in the car and I do that same thing that your dad did. So to think, oh, my son will actually value that and not just think I'm a blowhard someday. <laughs> it could it always go either way. Really good. <laughs> so hopefully he will have that same experience uh, when he's older. And yeah. Appreciate me playing all these songs for him. Absolutely. What's your number four, Stephen? My number four, you know, and it's funny, you were talking about diegetic sound. 
I just realized that all five of my of my picks are diegetic sound hmm. examples, wow. and I didn't do that on purpose, but I clearly have a preference for that. My number four choice is California Dreamin' from Wong Kar Wai's Chungking Express. Did I pronounce that correctly, by the way? Yeah. I don't think I've ever said that title out loud. Well, we're the wrong people to ask, actually, but... <laughs> That song is, is is featured, I believe it's in the middle story. It's about this woman who's working in a diner, and she develops a relationship with this beat cop that always comes in every night. And she loves the song California Dreamin' by the Mamas and the Papas. And we see her listening to this song throughout the, the film. We hear the song, I don't know how many times, it's like dozens of times, and it's like different points in the song and it starts over and you hear it again and again and i love that because it's such a great depiction of how people actually listen to music you know we've all had that experience like where you're obsessed with a song so much that that's the only song you ever want to hear and it's not this sort of impeccably put together playlist of different kinds of obscure songs it's just the one song all the time that's all you want to do and uh, I just thought that was so cool when uh, when, when Wong Kar Wai did that. Uh, recently, I rewatched Young Adult, the Jason Reitman film, mm-hmm. and he does something similar at the beginning of that movie with this teenage fan club song called "The Concept," where Charlize Theron is driving in her car and she listens to that song over and over in the car over the credits. And I don't know if that was a conscious homage to Wong Kar Wai there but uh just the experience again of of being obsessed with the song and wanting to hear nothing else i thought that was a really cool to show that yeah for sure great yeah yeah the way it weaves into every aspect of your life and and also then the movie is using it you know we're used to character themes or or musical motifs that are composed but but it's a different technique to to use an existing piece for that all right, my number four is where I'm going to get to my Tom Petty pick. I guess I'm the Petty guy here, Adam. We're <laughs> discovering. I don't know what that means, but I'm going with Free Fallen in Jerry Maguire, Cameron Crowe's sports agent confessional. This takes place, it's just after Tom Cruise's Jerry Maguire has made this handshake deal with Bo Bridges. So, and actually the music starts, it, it kicks in over that handshake that they share and it's the Rolling Stones bitch is the music mm-hmm. at that point. So the drum beat kicks off and it seems perfect for that moment, right? Like, oh, this is how yeah, the energy of it. This is how songs are used in movies. This is the way we usually have the moment captured. But then we cut to Jerry immediately after in his car and it's just not working for him. No, but he doesn't know the words. He's not I guess this is a same. transition, right? A yeah. diegetic, non-diegetic transition here. So yeah, he doesn't really know those words. So he's stumbling over them as he's trying to sing along. Changes the radio station. We get Angel of the Morning. Here it's performed by Merrily Rush and the Turnabouts. He sings a phrase, but that's not really what he wants either. He then finds Graham Parsons' She. Things are only getting worse at this point. But then he finds this. Breaking her heart. So unlike you, Adam, I've never needed much convincing when it comes to Petty. Full Moon Fever 
came out right in that era I was talking about, 1989. So that was sort of like where the door cracked open for me for classic rock was like, oh, it can sound like this too. It was one of the first CDs I can remember buying and, you know, taping. And that's when the CDs came in those packages, those long rectangle packages. So you kind of had an album cover, even though you were getting a CD and taping that up on my wall. Free Falling, of course, I think it's probably its signature song. So I just think here in Jerry Maguire, it's a brilliant variation on that cliche scene that we get so often, a character singing along to music in the car. But the way it's set up, and of course, the gusto with which Cruise belts it out. I mean, if anyone's going to give 110% even to a cliche scene like this, it's Tom Cruise. It just makes it perfect. I love the little laugh of delight you know, he has when he finally realizes he found the right song and he lets it out. I, I think these filmmakers were focusing on, um, or we will, as we get further into our list, Linklater, you mentioned, Wes Anderson, Scorsese. They kind of function as DJs in the way they, they use music to enhance an experience. And this is probably the most literal example of that. Crow is just dialing up the right song, just the right song for his character and, and also for us in the audience. So that's my petty pick at number four. There is something about him landing on that tune. I think it speaks to everything we were talking earlier about with Petty, right? Where it's just that that immediate appreciation, the immediate recognition. Of course you know the words. Of course you know the hook. Right, right. He's, he's dialed in right away because that's, that's part of the magic of Petty. My number four is one of those, Josh, that is also a diegetic to non-diegetic transition. And I had a different movie on this list in this slot up until about Sunday. And then I was actually watching the new movie American Animals and it used this song and instantly I flashed to the use of this song in another film, in one of my favorite films of the 2000s. And I didn't just flash to the movie title or the scene that it comes from, but the exact feeling of dread I felt watching the scene for the first time was triggered in me hearing it in this other movie. Hurdy Gurdy Man by Donovan in Zodiac. Yeah. The beginning of the David Fincher film. It's the Zodiac Killer's first murder, July 4th, 1969 in Vallejo, California. That couple, Darlene and Mike, they decide to go somewhere quiet. They're going to go listen to music and talk, as she says, with a giggle. Maybe do a little something more. And they go out to the kind of lover's lane lookout. And just as some punks peel out and drive away... On the car radio, we hear those opening kind of faint, haunting chords of Hurdy Gurdy Man. And then someone pulls in behind them, kind of freaks them out a little bit, leaves, car comes back, the guy gets out, comes to the window, they say something to him, and the shots fire. And the music crescendos, that outro guitar riff crescendos with the cascade of bullets and Darlene's body falling in slow motion. That that song, it, it feels like it's of the time, 1969 when this happened, it came out in 68. It's a little bit psychedelic, but it has this whole otherworldly tone to it. It's a little bit menacing, like the horror we're watching play out. And the song lyrics, which I, I don't purport to really have any sense of whatsoever, the narrator of that song is visited by this person, the hurdy-gurdy man, who is singing songs of love, but also at one point down through all eternity, the crying of humanity. So it seems even more appropriate for the scene. And this is a song I knew coming into the movie. I 
appreciated it. I was a fan of of Donovan's greatest hits, and I heard on the radio all the time, but it completely recontextualized the song for me. And now, obviously, I can't escape it when I hear it. Another great use of Donovan, To Die For, Season of the Witch. At the end of that Gus Van Sant film, the end credits. And maybe I just have a soft spot for Donovan, too, because Sunshine Superman was one of those songs that I heard like the summer before my senior year in college. And it just became the song of the summer. Somehow a song from 1968-69 was the song of the summer in the 90s for me. So with all that in mind, I had to go Hurdy Gurdy Man from Zodiac. Another shout out for Donovan would be Atlantis and Goodfellas when they kill Billy Bats. Oh, yeah. That's playing in the background. Oh, yeah. Which is such a crazy choice for Scorsese to make, but it's perfect. The Film Spotting Top 5 Classic Rock Moments in Movies continues with guest Stephen Hyden in just a bit. Stay with us. Let's go ahead and get back to our top five classic rock moments in movies. Our guest this week is rock writer Stephen Hyden, author of the new book, Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. And it's time for Stephen's number three choice. My number three is a song that, you know, you're talking about Hurdy Gurdy Man being recontextualized in Zodiac having, I think that song is kind of sinister on its own, but definitely taken, you know, Donovan has sort of like bubblegum context, I think for some people. David Fincher got all that away and just made him sound totally evil. My choice, this band is not menacing at all, and yet they became menacing in this film. The band is Night Ranger, the song is Sister (laughs) Christian, and the film is Boogie Nights. Yeah. Hey, Rahab! Hello, friends! Which one is Tom? Yeah, that's me. Sister. Wait a minute, Ford. Of course, it's that famous scene where Mark Wahlberg, Thomas Jane, and John C. Riley are trying to rob Alfred Molina, and Alfred Molina is playing his totally awesome mixtape, and when they walk in, I believe Jesse's girl is playing. And then it transitions into Sister Christian. And then after Sister Christian, it's 99 Left Balloons by Nina. That's the song that's playing like when Alfred Molina's trying to blow their heads off. I may have the order on that wrong, but at any rate, Sister Christian is the, is the song that sticks out to me. I think just because going back to those days when I listened to classic rock radio all the time, and I had to sit through the dregs of classic rock radio and, and night ranger was one of those bands you know that really had no pedigree at all making fairly anonymous boogie rock you know in the early 80s and sister christian was their big power ballad song kind of a corny song a song about basically a guy lecturing a woman not to have sex before she settles down with a nice fella you know very sort of puritanical song in a lot of ways yep 
And to take that song and to put it into this insane context where uh, there's so much tension, you know, you have the guy throwing firecrackers all over the place. Mm-hmm. It just totally transforms that song yes. to the point where I think anytime you hear it now, that is the song from Boogie Nights. It doesn't belong to Night Ranger anymore. <laughs> it belongs to Paul Thomas Anderson. Yes. And, you know, Anderson, I think, definitely learned from people like Scorsese and Jonathan Demme, those two in particular, about how to use music in a movie. And Paul Thomas Anderson's also really good at shooting music, you know, and I think he's probably taking cues from Jonathan Demme, who's one of his heroes in that regard. But, you know, the way he's able to choreograph the action in that scene to the music and to take this sort of incongruous song and totally make it work and make it work for the character of Molina. You know, you believe that he would love this song and yet it also works in the scene. Yes. Yeah. Setting this insane coked out mood, uh, that you're trying to get, uh, in the movie. Uh, it's so bizarre, and it, but yet it works so well. I mean, that is one of the great sequences I think in any movie ever. Oh yeah. Uh, but certainly in, in terms of like using a song, there's not much that's better than that as far as I'm concerned. You know, I, I said I don't have any aesthetic objections to classic rock. I think Sister Christian, I might I might say that I do in that case. So, yeah, I, that's why, again, as you're saying, yeah. that's exactly why it works. Here, you're right? right that there's no menace in that song. And yet I was ready for it because I swear to you, for some reason, when I was eight or nine years old and M- MTV had just kind of come out over the past year or two. And it was the thing that kids like me sat up late at night watching on weekends, that video would come on and it scared the hell out of me. <laughs> something about the, there was something so ominous about there those, a lot of eyes, those weird hazy, staring eyes, in those it? hazy, like faux angelic shots. And the, <laughs> the, the girl, the character from the song, like up in the, up in the window, looking down on people, it scared the hell out of me. Sounds, I have no idea why. <laughs> sounds pretty awful. <laughs> Your number three, Josh. My number three is Sweet Emotion by Aerosmith. Yes, finally getting to dazed and confused. Appropriately, I think we hear classic rock before we even see anything in Dazed and Confused, right? The screen is black, and then we get the growing buzz of Sweet Emotion that's paving the way for the title. Then, when the vocals kick in, we finally cut to, to this orange muscle car just cruising the high school parking lot in slow motion. It's like a shark just slipping confidently through the ocean here. I almost put this at my number one, not only because it's dazed and confused, but also because I think this was the best test case among my options for my personal criteria for this list. Of all the bands I chose, Aerosmith was the one I probably am still the most skeptical of. It's just, it was too close. They were always too close to hair metal for me. And I can remember even when they teamed up with Run DMC on Walk This Way in 86, I I had a Run DMC poster in my room at that time. I did not have an Aerosmith one. No. I don't know that either of those <laughs> were the right choice for me, but I lean more towards Run DMC. Still, I mean, you put, maybe it's their best song. I don't know. You'd ask somebody else, but <laughs> you put no, Sweet. It's not. it's not. Okay. <laughs> okay. No. I don't know that. Still, you put it to this kind of use, you've sold me on it. So Aerosmith, Sweet Emotion, In Days and Confused, that's my number three. <laughs> Steven, you write about 
Aerosmith, and you had that exact same experience as I did. All of us of a certain age discovered Aerosmith through first that Walk This Way collaboration with Run DMC, and then later their resurgence and their rebirth in the 80s. It was only later that we went back, some of us, unlike you, Josh, and realized that now actually, like, Get Your Wings and Rocks is where all the great Aerosmith is. But, yeah, you definitely talk about that in some detail. Yeah, I mean, I loved Pump and Permanent Vacation, all that era of Aerosmith. And Days and Confused came out right in the middle of that. You know, that was like part of cluing you in to their past. And I, I, I agree with you. That is such a seductive opening. Like you are in that world when that song comes on. And I mean, that's another movie where we could just do a top five list of great Days and Confused music scenes. For sure. Totally. I love Tuesday's Gone in that movie, <laughs> like at the end of the beer bus for sure you know that's such a perfect sort of end of the night song yeah to play uh but yeah that movie's just loaded with 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 great moments it is and yet there will be a little bit more talk about days and confused later in this top five my number three i'm going back to wes anderson and i may not be able to choose a song from the royal tenenbaums but i can choose something from rushmore and i'm going with making time from very early in the film by the creation no not the who as even i made that mistake recently i think in our sacred cow discussion of rushmore i foolishly called them the who because it sounds like the who and because i'd never heard of the creation this was their their one tune that i I was reading today and obviously steven you can chime in here did they actually have a hit or is this one of those cases where this song kind of became a hit when rushmore came out or became a song that people were at least more aware of I mean, I don't think they had a big hit when, like in America. I think they were bigger in England. Uh, but a reason why they sound like The Who is that they had the same producer, this guy named Shell Tamey, who also did, I think he did early kink stuff as well. But he did The Who as well. So like that very, you know, that maximum R&B type sound, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's very much deliberate yeah. in the creation. So yeah, I think it's natural to mix those bands up. Sure. The British Invasion, obviously, crucial to Wes Anderson and his work. There's a bunch of it in this film. And this is a case, though, where I was, as I said, hearing this for the first time. Never heard this band, never heard this song before. Instantly caught up in it. But also, I love that it's where we, of course, are meeting Max Fisher. It's the montage where we are seeing all the different clubs and activities that he is a part of. So it's our introduction to him. And in some ways, this this was really my introduction to Wes Anderson too, coming very early in this film, getting a sense of what his preoccupations were and what his musical tastes were, what his style was like as a filmmaker. Rushmore was the first Wes Anderson film I had ever seen. And so the moment I watched this montage, I knew he was a filmmaker that I wanted to follow. And if you look at it, literally, you can take the song and say, okay, well, These are all the things that he makes time for instead of actually paying attention to school. The previous scene is him in that daydream uh, in math class. But it's really just the energy of the song and the energy of that sequence that does it for me. I did a college movie radio show as a grad student back in the early 2000s at Iowa. And I used to use this song all the time coming back from commercial breaks just because I liked the the propulsiveness of it and there's a recklessness and a rebelliousness to it immediately that's at odds with 
this kid who we're seeing him in Model UN and the Stamp and Coin Collecting Club. But that really does clue us in to the type of character and the type of personality, the type of subversive personality that he is. So it's it's great for a lot of reasons. It's also on this list for me at number three, just because when we started thinking about this top five, I think this montage was the first one that popped into my head. Yeah, and, and Max would never pick a well-known song either, Good right? Point. He'd go for, for like a deep dive like that, yeah. Steven, we are at your number two classic rock moment in movies. So, you know, earlier I said that I wanted to pick some obscure choices because I felt like I was getting really obvious as I got higher up my list. My top two choices are both from Martin Scorsese movies. And I think there's Martin Scorsese and there's everybody else when it comes to using classic rock in movies. Like, he is the world champion. No one comes close to him as far as I'm concerned. And I feel like all these other filmmakers that we're talking about learned how to use music by watching Scorsese movies. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and my number two choice, it really was a pioneering film in using rock music as a soundtrack. You know, it came out the same year as American Graffiti, which is a film that you know, is, is widely acknowledged as being like one of the first kind of movies to use wall-to-wall rock music as opposed to like a traditional film score. But this movie came out the same year, and it's sort of the underbelly of, of, of American Graffiti. And, of course, that movie is Mean Streets. And the, the scene that I – and there's so many scenes in Mean Streets that, that you could choose. You know, I, I love the Johnny Ace scene, Pledging My Love, like where the veteran – the guy from Vietnam goes crazy and he gets into a fight. Of course, the be my baby scene over the opening credits. Oh yeah. Uh, there's a great scene where Harvey Keitel is dancing around the club and tell me by the Rolling Stones is playing in the background. I love all those scenes, but this, the, the scene that blew my mind is the scene when Johnny boy walks into the bar, Johnny boy played by Robert De Niro. And we hear Harvey Keitel, Charlie, you know, talk about like how this guy is the scourge of his life. And all of a sudden, Jumpin' Jack Flash by the Rolling Stones comes on. We see De Niro walk in in slow motion. You know, and before I said that this is a diegetic scene, I guess I'm assuming that Jumping Jack Flash is playing in the bar. I, I guess I don't really know that for a fact, but um, it's just a perfect example to me of like, you know, a director saying like, "This looks awesome. Yep, this character is awesome. I'm gonna do something. This is an awesome song, and if I put it together, it's just gonna knock people's socks off." And a lot of people try to use music in that way, and they end up. I think a lot of times just being sort of obvious and it's not doesn't come off as well. Um, but to me, that's just a perfect example of, of that. And, you know, I love the Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones are one of my favorite bands ever. And I think that the fact that I was watching Scorsese movies in the early 90s during this formative period of my life where I was also getting into, getting into classic rock, I think Scorsese is responsible for me liking the Stones so much because he made the Stones seem so freaking cool in his movies. Mean Streets, Goodfellas, uh, in particular. Uh, and you know, you, I could have chosen Monkey Man in, in Goodfellas, you know, or Gimme Shelter in any number of Scorsese movies. Mm-hmm. 
but this is the scene that always stands out to me as being head and shoulders above the rest. And we agree with you. <laughs> I, I was going to say, I can't argue with you. I have it at number two as well, Jumping Jack Flash here in Mean Streets. And and yeah, it's, you know, you look at it now and it plays like so many of the copycats. But imagine, as it sounds like was your experience, Stephen, like seeing this use of music and slow motion camera and character. I mean, really what it is, is two people at the same time, characters being described and their interstates being captured yes. by the music that we're hearing, not only for Johnny Boy. Obviously, it makes him look cool, but but also for Charlie, for Harvey Keitel, you know, that that sort of um, fear and, and maybe not fear, but just the state of unsettlement that he has that the music is capturing. I actually found uh, I found a website, ultimateclassicrock.com, and Brian Wozniak there was writing and had a great description for this scene. He just says, here comes trouble, and you can't tear your eyes from the screen. Why would you want to? And, and I think that captures the dual, the two things going on at once in this sequence, largely because of the music. Yeah, I'm making it three for three at number two, this scene, Jumpin' Jack Flash from Mean Streets. You guys have both said it, pioneering i mean none of these other choices we're talking about probably happen without this sequence right here and the movie mean streets and i was always a beatles guy you're the rivalries expert steven i was always more beatles than stones so never fully appreciated them and here scorsese is using the stones to try to make johnny boy look cool but here because of scorsese johnny boy made the stones cool for me. Jumpin' Jack Flash, for some reason, was a song I just never embraced. And yet, after seeing it in Mean Streets for the first time, uh, it's become one of my favorites. And speaking to what you said, Josh, it tells you just as much about Johnny Boy and the type of character he is as he strolls into that room and he's got the women on his on his shoulders as it does tell us about Charlie, the stark contrast, the way the camera cuts to Keitel's close-up and that look of consternation on his face. It's, it's a case where Charlie, as we know from watching the film, he wants some kind of spiritual redemption. Well, his best friend just might be the devil. And we get that when he walks in to Jumpin' Jack Flash and the bar is all red even down there. Right. It's this den of sin. And I understand now, Stephen, from your book that that all makes sense. Never would have known this. But Jumpin' Jack Flash comes from the... Alistair Crowley influenced Stones period. So this is a song where it was always catchy and I'm sure it was a big hit. I think it's their most played song ever live, but there's a darkness to it too. There is something sinister about Johnny Boy and the way that scene is rendered and Jumpin' Jack Flash has a big role in that. Yeah, absolutely. And just it's kind of foreshadowing too, like what's going to happen to these two guys by the end of the movie. It's not going to end well, but like you said, you can't tear your eyes from it. You know, you you don't want to go back. You're, you're willing to go over the cliff with these guys because of that song. Okay. Number one, classic rock moment in film. And you've already told us it's a Scorsese movie. Which one and which song, Stephen? Well, okay. So this is a maybe like a less obvious moment, but it's my number one. It's from my favorite movie, of all time, which is Taxi Driver. And the song is Late for the Sky by Jackson Brown. And there's a scene in the movie where Travis Bickle is watching American Bandstand in his apartment and he's holding an enormous gun and he's pointing it at the TV as these teenagers are dancing. 
to Late for the Sky, which is this beautiful, mournful 70s singer-songwriter ballad about the end of a, of a relationship, you know, and it's it, Jackson Brown is singing very tenderly about, you know, being in bed next to a woman and knowing that their relationship is over. That song by itself is just such a powerful gut punch of a song. And it gets played in this scene where teenagers are dancing. And, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical about whether Jackson Brown would have actually been played on American Bandstand. I don't think that ever happened. You know, I, I, I can't really see teenagers getting into that song. But watching Travis Bickle watch these teenagers dance and, and having this song play in the background... To me, like, that's what the movie is. And that's what that character is. He's a guy on the outside, looking in, who knows he's never going to be on the inside. And the power of that movie is that you can relate to that as a person who isn't a psychopathic would-be murderer. <laughs> you know, like I think anyone that's ever felt lonely in their life, which is all of us, can watch Taxi Driver and feel that they can relate to Travis Bickle on some level. And I think that scene has a lot to do with it mm -hmm. because I think we've all been in that situation where we've watched other people have fun and be happy and we're miserable inside and their happiness somehow makes our misery worse, you know, or makes our sense of alienation worse. And that's such a difficult thing to capture on film. You know, because it's such an internal feeling. It's universal, but to do it in a way where Travis isn't being demonstrative on any level, where he's just sitting in a chair watching television, I think is a tremendous achievement, you know, to be able to do that. And 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 it's because of that song and it's and it's how it's used in that scene. So in a way, it's sort of the opposite in a way of, of the Mean Street scene, which I think is such an audacious scene it's such an exhilarating type thing why i love that lay for the sky scene so much is that uh, the emotional impact of it is just overwhelming to me you know i watched it again before talking to you guys and i almost got choked up watching it so yeah i when, when this question came up that was the first thing that came to hmm. mind again not an obvious choice for scorsese using classic rock but i, I to me it's the it, it, it's the most emotionally overwhelming uh, use for him yeah you mentioned you know the the empathy that's part of that scene but also it really is one of the more disturbing scenes too in taxi driver right. not not in the big way of the ones that we think of immediately and we right. remember with the violence but maybe it's because of what you're describing, Stephen, the way it does get us in inside his headspace that feels just comfortable enough while still revealing um, how scary things are in there. Yeah, there's something that incongruity of the violence that we see in him and how disturbed he is mixed with the intimacy of the way they're dancing on on the TV. It really it it, it tells us everything we need to know about his psyche. And I can certainly understand that 
kind of emotional reaction to it. And I'm so glad you mentioned it because despite my love for Taxi Driver, a movie that is in the film spotting pantheon, I somehow had completely blocked this song and that scene out of my memory. And now for the past two days or so, Stephen, I've been listening to Late for the Sky on my iPhone constantly. What a great tune. Yes. I'm sure you've been weeping, too. Yes. I mean, that would be a heavy song to <laughs> Openly. be listening to on repeat. Yeah, exactly. All right. We are at your number one, Josh. So I was just, I was doing just fine in life without The Who. I mean, I was aware of their <laughs> stature. They just, it seemed like a commitment, you know? There's so much going on in their songs. Then I saw Rushmore, in which Wes Anderson set one of the movie's many, many brilliant sustained comic set pieces to The Who medley, A Quick One While He's Away. So this is at the height of the rivalry between Bill Murray's Mr. Bloom and Jason Schwartzman's Max over the affections of Olivia Williams' Miss Cross. And it all begins when Max pumps this swarm of bees into Bloom's hotel room, which Bloom acknowledges with a yelp and a swat, and the soundtrack acknowledges with these power chords. So ironically, this is from the You Are Forgiven portion of of the nine-minute epic song. Uh, So just as these effusive declarations of mercy are being heard, Bloom and Max are at the height of their antagonism, running over a bike, uh, disabling the brakes in a car. And this goes back to a little bit how we were talking about Anderson messing with the music he uses, too. He's not just dialing the song up here. He's weaving it perfectly into the action on the screen, timing it so that that dramatic pause in the music, and here's where I think he extends the pause just a little bit longer than it is on the actual recording. It gets filled in by a classic Bill Murray line reading as Bloom reports Max to the police. Twelve pounds, black hair, glasses, oval face. I'm sure this montage would have been deliriously insane and funny no matter what, but using the who as well kind of gives it this comic operatic exaggeration that the montage needs. So my number one is Rushmore, the who's a quick one while he's away. So good. Yeah, a great choice. My number one comes from a movie that has been discussed already and chosen by you, Josh, with Sweet Emotion opening Dazed and Confused. Now, I went with a different song, and this was the dilemma. I knew that Linklater was one of those guys that had to be well represented, and I'm bookending my list with Linklater, starting with Boyhood, ending here with Dazed. And I don't know how you choose only one. Not only do you have Sweet Emotion and Tuesday's Gone, as you mentioned earlier, Stephen, but Fox on the Run and so many other great songs used so wonderfully in this movie. I guess for me, the one I enjoy the most, the one I enjoy going back and watching the most is actually Hurricane. Here comes the story of Hurricane. We see Wooderson, Matthew McConaughey, and Pink and Mitch open up the door of the Emporium, the kind of teen center that they go to as they walk in. It's a kind of tracking shot in front of them as they enter. Then it cuts to another tracking shot that's gliding along the Emporium. It shows us the whole place, all the activities that are going on. And it's not one extended shot. It's not a riff on Goodfellas Copa shot or anything like that. But it functions similarly in showing us the entire space that they're in. And it certainly heightens the coolness 
of all three of those guys. And Wooderson in that moment in particular as the leader walking through that door, the use of the slow motion as they kind of strut in. And this song is such an interesting choice, unlike, fair to say, I think, so many other choices that are on our list here. The tune jams. It's a great song, rhythmically, just musically for the scene. It's perfect, and it's not out of place at all. I believe that it would be played in this time and place. It's also long enough that it can play over and under the entire scene, right? And he doesn't have to cut to any other tracks. But it's also this kind of grown-up song. It's less juvenile than, say, Sweet Emotion and Fox on the Run. It's this song about fleeting glory and a guy who one time could have been champion of the world, as the song says. And here we have Wooderson, who was actually called at one point, would have been, by another kid who's playing foosball. So I do think Linklater is winking at us a little bit with that line. And also the fact that, I think we all have to agree, these kids aren't thinking about much beyond sex, drugs, and rock and roll. If civil rights is a concern for them, if they have any kind of larger social consciousness, it's not really something Linklater is showing us. But Hurricane is a protest song, and Dazed in its own way is a protest movie, of course, because it's a movie that, that begins and ends with Pink having to make this decision about whether he's going to stand up to the football coach. He's going to stand up for himself, and what, what he sees is his personal integrity, or is he going to give in to the establishment? So that element maybe is at play a little bit, too, with the song choice. At the end of it, though, I think about Almost Famous, and I think about Russell Hammond's line to William Miller, just make us look cool, and if that's the only reason he chose it, Linklater succeeded. He and Bob Dylan with that song make those guys look really cool. I'm impressed by your restraint. Only two Linklater picks. Only two. Only two, yeah. (laughs) And I I could have done the entire top five. Good ones, good ones too. So with that, Stephen, we'll see if you object to this or not. We do this thing on the show where every once in a while we actually anoint a new movie into our pantheon. We've talked about it enough. We love it so much that we got to just put it away and we can't make it eligible for top fives anymore. And I think that this movie has not only come up enough on the show, but it just seems like like the film after doing this top five list, the maybe the the ultimate kind of tribute to classic rock in cinema that it's time to just put it away forever. It's time to put it in the pantheon. I think it's deserving. Do you agree, Stephen? Absolutely. I think in terms of music movies, put it in the pantheon. Yes, it deserves to be in there. That's what I love about these high school girls, man. I get older, they stay the same age. (laughs) There you have it. It's officially in the Pantheon. And that is our top five best classic rock moments in movies. And we have fit in a lot of titles here between our individual lists and throwing out a few others as we go. But of course, there are so many others. Josh, what about some honorable mentions from you? So for me, there are two that are ineligible because the films are in the Pantheon, but otherwise they would have been on my list. And I think they've already been mentioned. Uh, Aaron Neuwirth actually suggested this as well on Facebook. It's This is the End from the Doors and Apocalypse Now. And then Stuck in the Middle with You and Reservoir Dogs yep. is, I, you know... That's like one of those Tarantino scenes I still wrestle with, but you cannot deny the how much the music yes. is reason for that. And then another recent one is Immigrant Song in Thor Ragnarok. I mean, yeah. that uh, I think would probably fit and uh, definitely makes that moment. Okay. 
I thought about including, thought very hard about including Heart of the Sunrise by Yes from the end Ooh. of Vincent Gallo's Buffalo 66. Oh, yeah, love I saw everything about how that song is used. Yes. And I love that we get some prog rock into this list somewhere. Going back with Cameron Crowe and Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Jackson Brown, Somebody's Baby. I cannot hear that song and not think about Jennifer Jason Lee going out on that date with the older guy and how that whole thing ends up. And also Kashmir being used in that film when Mark gets the advice from Damone about what he should do if the time comes to make out with Stacy on their date. And he tells him that you got to put on Led Zeppelin 4. And then the joke is they're sitting there in the car kind of staring at each other silently as Kashmir is playing. And I think to the true music fan, we're supposed to understand that, well, he's not doing it right. He's not playing Led Zeppelin 4 there. The Color of Money, you know I love the scene with Tom Cruise as Vince playing pool to Werewolves of London. That one I thought about a lot. And then this recent Richard Linklater movie, Everybody Wants Some. The great scene with Pink Floyd's Fearless, where we get the character explaining all the nuances of the song and how it perfectly builds. So those are the ones that immediately stood out. I'm surprised, Josh, that you didn't mention the one suggested by, and I love this Twitter handle for this list, at Derp Zerplin. <laughs> I think that's a reference in some way, a riff okay. on Zeppelin. But what have they got? Magic Man. The great Magic Man from Hart used in The Virgin Suicide. Right. When I, I Josh think... Hartnett. Yeah, yeah. I think um, Angelica Bastien might have picked that as a Sofia Coppola moment okay. when she guessed it on the yeah, show. So I do, I do remember talking about it. Though. Okay, my last two, I promise. If we, count, if we can count Good Vibrations and the Beach Boys as classic rock, and Stephen, you'll have to be the arbiter of this because you're the expert. I don't know that you can because it's pre, just pre-Sgt. Peppers, isn't it? I would put them in there. You would? Yeah. I, I, the Beach Boys aren't in my book very much, but I would put them in. Yeah. They're classic rock. This was suggested by our PA, Andy Mitchell, and it's a great one that I would have totally overlooked. The scene in Love and Mercy, which I think is a very good film about Brian Wilson. The sequence where we see the making of Good Vibrations you want to talk about musical authenticity and really kind of taking you into the studio and actually believing that that song is being put together. It really, really captures it. And then the beginning of the movie Adventureland, the replacements, Bastards of Young, a song I had never heard before. I saw Adventureland and then instantly downloaded and listened to nonstop. Those are my honorable mentions. Steven, any come to mind for you? Yeah. You know, I, when I was making my list... I had some that were just outside my top five. I love how Rob Zombie uses Midnight Rider over the credits of The Devil's Rejects. I think that sets the tone perfectly for that movie, not just uh, in terms of the characters, but the 70s grindhouse feel of it. You know, that song is so great. It has such an ominous feel to it. It also kind of gives like a greasy you know, summary type feel like this is a movie you'd see to drive in. And the Allman brothers always have that kind of like, it's like music for bikers, you know? <laughs> so I think that that works really well in that movie. Also Freebird at the end of that movie, just the fact that he was willing to go there with that song and let it play from beginning to end over the grand shootout at the end of that movie, I think is such a gutsy thing and uh, works beautifully. I remember the first time I saw the Inarati movie of, of Maurice Peros, which came out in 2001, and Long Cool Woman in a Black Dress by the Hollies came on, which was a totally unexpected thing. I did not 
anticipate that song coming on and works beautifully. And I love that song. Another song that's sort of unexpected when it comes up is in Silence of the Lambs, American Girl by Tom Petty. Yeah, Tom Petty. Where we see Buffalo Bill's uh, victim singing along to the song in her car. And it's a very disarming scene, you know, because, again, it's funny that there are multiple movies with scenes where people are singing to Tom Petty songs in their car. You know, the the, the Jerry (laughs) Maguire scene, of course, that we talked about earlier. And this is a much different scene <laughs> yeah. where someone is singing along. But, you know, it, it, it's something that instantly gives you empathy with this woman, you know, because she's doing something that we've all done, singing along to this great rock anthem. And then immediately after that, she ends up getting kidnapped by, by Buffalo Bill. Mm-hmm. So that scene stuck out for me. So, yeah, those are the films that kind of immediately come to mind for me. But, you know, this is something... There's like literally dozens of examples. I love thinking about this kind of stuff. So I know I'm going to think of a bunch of other scenes after uh, we're done talking here. Well, we can always have you back on to finish the discussion. Stephen Hyden's new book is Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock. It's available wherever you buy your books. Highly recommend it. You can also check out Stephen's podcast, Celebration Rock, wherever you find your podcast. And you can read him at uprocks.com. Now, Stephen, we've obviously built top five lists around your last two books. I'd like to kind of get started now. Do you want to give us a tease? You know what the next one's going to be about? Well, I'm working on a book with my friend Steve Gorman about the Black Crows. Nice. Hmm. Steve was a member of the band. He's a founding member, and and he's writing a, a memoir about it, and I'm helping him do it. And it's funny because Twilight of the Gods... The title of that book is an homage to the Led Zeppelin book, right. Hammer of the Gods by Stephen Davis. And when I was growing up, I read a lot of rock biographies, and I still read a lot of rock biographies. And this book I'm writing with Steve, it's exciting because it's like my version of that now. You know, I get to have a hand in, in my own book like that because this book has lots of stories about drugs and bands being sort of out of control and making fortunes and losing fortunes. And, you know, that, that band definitely had every rock and roll cliche happen to them over the course of their career. So I think that's going to be a pretty fascinating book for people. So I'm excited for that to come out. Yeah. Very cool. Well, I don't know what the movie tie-in would be, and I don't know how helpful Josh will be, but I can tell you that I could build a top five list around the Black Crows <laughs> without any problem whatsoever. So I will start working on that now, and I look forward to having you back on in the future. This was a lot of fun. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks, Stephen. It's always so much fun. Thank you so much, guys. You bet. Best of luck. And that's the show. Our thanks again to Stephen Hyden. If you have any feedback, we'd love to hear from you. As always, feedback at filmspotting.net. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Andy Mitchell. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. If you enjoyed this show, please give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts. That way we can reach some new listeners. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.
Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.